Good evening, church family. My name is Ryan Berry. I'm a pastoral assistant here at University Baptist Church, and I'm excited to preach to you this evening. We're going to be in Psalm 31. If you'll get your Bible out, I'll start by praying, and we will begin. God, we give you praise for your faithfulness, the fact that you were kind to us when we did not deserve it. And God, we know it's been a long day, so we pray that you would keep our minds clear, help us to behold marvelous things from your word, and Lord, help us to trust you with the care of our souls and to live each day in the confidence that you will keep us to the end. Amen. So as you're turning to Psalm 31, I'll start with a bit of context of the psalm. <clears throat> so the author of the psalm is King David. You could see there at the superscript, the beginning of the chapter. Some have speculated that this psalm was written um, as David was being pursued by King Saul after saving the city of Keilah in 1 Samuel 23, while others believe that the clear allusion in verse 10 to David's own iniquity requires that it was penned at a later date. Perhaps when Absalom was rebelling and all of the slanderous things about David were being tossed around. Perhaps even when it was near the time of David and his own great sin with Bathsheba. But ultimately, we're not 100% certain of when this psalm was written. But while we don't know the exact date, we do know some of the circumstances more generally. So we know that David is writing this psalm as an individual lament to God as he finds himself in very serious affliction. You can see that particularly in verses 10 to 13. So in the midst of these intense personal afflictions, David appeals confidently to God, making a plea for help. And God, in his great mercy toward David, comforts him to the point that even as he suffers greatly, he is able to boldly and wholeheartedly give praise to God for his goodness. A well-known preacher once said that true faith is ambidextrous. It can take troubles in one hand and blessings in the other hand and hold them in tension in the midst of it knowing that God knows the plan that he has for you. This is the trust that David exemplifies so well in this psalm. So friends, with this in mind, let's turn our attention now to our verse, which is verse 5. So Psalm 31, verse 5. I'll read it twice and then we'll begin. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I'd like to submit to you that the main verse, or the main idea of this verse, rather, is this. That God's faithfulness fuels our trust in Him. God's faithfulness fuels our trust in Him. This main idea will serve as our basic outline this evening. So point number one, we'll be considering God's faithfulness. Point number two, we'll discuss how we ought to respond to His faithfulness, namely trusting in Him. So God's faithfulness, how does he express his faithfulness to us? The most sure foundation of God's faithfulness is actually found in his revelation of his own character to us. The primary way that we are to understand God's faithfulness is firstly to himself. 
This will be the first of two ways that we'll discuss how the Lord shows faithfulness, proves himself to be faithful. He's faithful to himself. In this verse, if you'll look back, David describes a very specific and important name to God. He refers to him as Lord. And whenever you see that English word, Lord, in all caps in an English Bible, that is a a direct reference to the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. So do you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, Moses is talking with God. And God says, go to Egypt, deliver my people out of captivity. And Moses, shuffling his feet, asks the question, if I go to the Israelites and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they say, what's his name, what should I tell them? And God, in an indescribably kind and gracious way, gives us words to apprehend a bit of who he is when he declares, I am who I am. He then says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is the name by which God showcases some of the most foundational and crucial attributes of his being. And it is no mistake that David uses this name after he has just committed his spirit to him. Let's consider just for a moment a few of the applications, or the implications rather, of God's name, I am. This is where we're going to find the foundation of our trust in God. The name I am proves, as simple as it sounds, the existence of God. He simply is. In fact, this name proves that he cannot not exist. That is to say that he is a necessary being. This name proves that he is outside of time, meaning he has always existed from eternity past to eternity future. There has never been a time where God was not. It proves that he has no creator, meaning that he is not contingent upon another being for creation or sustenance like we are. No, he is God all by himself. He is omnipresent, meaning that if God just is, then there is no place where he is not. He is immutable, meaning he cannot change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you remember the hymn we sang this morning? Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thou com- thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. He is eternal, incomprehensible, true to his word, the creator and arbiter of all that is good, so that all that comes to pass from his will is proper, right, and without stain of sin. And all of his promises necessarily must come to pass. Friends, we could not only spend the remainder of our time this evening talking about that and glorifying God in that, but we could spend the rest of our lives doing that. And it would never grow dull. The loveliness of God would never grow stale. The grandeur of his glory would never diminish. Indeed, I trust that this will be what composes our eternal state.
we're going to be thinking about God, looking at God and giving praise to God for the fact that he never changes and he's good. So this is the God that David has entrusted or committed his spirit to. Because why wouldn't you? You have this on your resume and you're still going to question the guy. Really. So you're all powerful. You're ever present. You're unhindered by time. You're righteous in all your ways. And it's impossible for any of your plans to not come to pass exactly as you say they would come to pass. That seems like pretty strong hands to put your soul into. But friends, in the same way that God is good, faithful, and all-powerful, he's also holy. He's righteous, and he's just. And I don't know if this is news to you or not, but we're not. For the person in his or her natural state, this is actually very bad news. Because God has dedicated a place which will also stand for eternity, where all persons who remain in their sin will be consigned to pay off the debt of sin that they've accrued for themselves. This place is called hell. It's real, and it's dangerous, and it poses an eternal threat to you if you're not in Christ. So please, don't hear me talk about the beauty, the majesty, the grace, and the mercy of God, and merely assume that you are the beneficiary of those things. But rather humble yourself. Confess your sins to God with a contrite heart. Repent of them and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, knowing that if you do, he is faithful and just to do it, to forgive you of your sins, reconciling you to himself, making you a beneficiary of those good gifts. Mm. Those of us in Christ have been redeemed from our sin and are saved to spend eternity with God in heaven. Amen. But David, in our verse, means to encourage us that even as we wait for the day that we'll come face to face with Christ, God in his kindness has graciously promised to care for us in the meantime. This takes us to the second way that God is faithful. He is faithful to his own. He's not only faithful to himself, he's faithful to his own, even in the day-to-day -day affairs of his children. Sometimes we Christians can be so focused on the eternal implications of God's grace, which, hear me, that is not a bad thing. But sometimes we can be so focused on the eternal implications of God grace, God's grace that we can accidentally forget to remember that he showcases his grace and mercy to you every morning that you wake up. Every single morning that you wake up. When David says, you have redeemed me, O Lord, he certainly was trusting in the security of his salvation, but also recalling to mind all those instances where the Lord sovereignly cared for him on earth and provided for his every need. How often do you consider that it isn't primarily due to your hard work that your belly is full? You aren't kept safe primarily because of the large lock on your door or because of whatever it is in the drawer next to your bed. 
It isn't primarily your own self-discipline that wakes you up before your alarm clock. It isn't primarily because of your education and your network that you have a job that allows all of your ends to meet. Friends, this is not to say that human responsibility is unimportant, but rather it is to say that in all things, we are not to look at ourselves and say, look at what I've done for myself, but rather look at how faithful and steadfast my God is. Look how he cares for my every need. When David declared, you have redeemed me, he's recognizing that the only reason he made it that far was due to the strong hand of God pushing him there, carrying him there, clearing the way for him to go there, pulling him through there. So in light of the marvelous assurance that we have from God that he will never leave us or forsake us in this life or in the life to come, how then should we live? The answer to this question is found in our second point. Simply, we place all of our trust in him in life and in death. Our verse reads, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. We've seen how God's character and attributes inform his inability to do wrong toward us. And we've seen how his initiating love toward us has united us to Christ so that we can spend eternity with him in heaven. So what about this life? What about when life continues to present us with challenges that we can't help but assume will do us in? We are meant in the same way that David did to entrust or commit ourselves to his providential care. Since he has redeemed our souls from hell, we can all the more confidently place our circumstances on earth into his hand. God's hand is a picture of his power and control in all situations, over all things. And to commit something to someone is to deposit it for safekeeping. So friends, when trials and suffering come, remind yourselves that your soul is actually in the hands of Yahweh, who, remember, never changes, who is all-powerful, who has saved you from your sin, who has adopted you into his family, and who has given you the Holy Spirit as a seal that he's coming back for you. He will complete the work that he has begun in you, for his own name is at stake if he were to let you fall. God's great faithfulness ought to fuel your trust in him. I'm going to close by reading the words of a great hymn, When Trials Come. When trials come, no longer fear. For in the pain, our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold. For there, his faithfulness is told. Friends, let's pray. God, we love you. And if it wasn't for your love first toward us, we could not love you. So God, since we are in Christ, we now give you thanks and we commit our souls to you. 
And we pray that you would help us to trust you each day. When trials come, help us to not fear, but to trust you. Thank you for choosing us. Help us to live a life that is glorifying and honoring to you. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.